Then they fought furiously in close combat about the body of Alcathous, wielding their long spears and their bronze armor about their bodies rang fearfully as they took aim at one another in the press of the fight. While the two heroes, Aeneas and Idomeneus, peers of Mars, outvied everyone in their desire to hack at each other with sword and spear. Aeneas took aim first, but Idomeneus was on the lookout and avoided the spear, so it sped from Aeneas's strong hand in vain and fell quivering in the ground. Edomeneus, meanwhile, smote Enemus in the middle of his belly and broke the plate of his corslet, whereupon his bowels came gushing out and he clutched the earth in the palms of his hands as he fell sprawling in dust. Idomeneus drew his spear out of the body but could not strip him of the rest of his armor for the rain of darts that were showered upon him. Moreover, his strength was now beginning to fail him so that he could no longer charge and could neither spring forward to recover his own weapon nor swerve aside to avoid one that was aimed at him. Therefore, though he still defended himself in hand-to-hand fight, his heavy feet could not bear him swiftly out of the battle. Deiphobus aimed a spear at him as he was retreating slowly from the field, for his bitterness against him was as fierce as ever, but again he missed him and hit Ascalaphus, the son of Mars. The spear went through his shoulder, and he clutched the earth in the palms of his hands as he fell sprawling in the dust. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And of course, that was a reading from the one, the only, the Iliad. Yes, yes. A nice violent passage. One of many violent passages. Uh, Man, the Iliad is stupendously violent. (laughs) It is like... It, it is like horror movie, blood and guts and gore violent. Yeah, yeah. There's a we, There were a number of passages that kind of called out for possible use here. Another one that I really enjoyed is he, Achilles, struck him in the belly near the navel so that all his bowels came gushing out onto the ground and the darkness of death came over him as he lay gasping. I uh, There's one that always stuck with me ever since like years ago when mm-hmm. I was reading this, I think in high school or college, whenever it was. Uh, it's this it, – I've just got to read it. I can't even describe okay. it. Go for it. Idomeneus speared Aramis in the mouth. The bronze point of the spear went clean through it beneath the brain, crashing in among the white bones and smashing them up. His teeth were all of them knocked out, and the blood came gushing in a stream from both his eyes. It also came gurgling up from his mouth and nostrils, and the darkness of death enfolded him round about. Now, it's interesting, of course, in the Iliad, you often see, as with also in the Odyssey, these like repeated lines and phrases that occur mm-hmm. over and over. Yeah, almost cl- like, we heard like clutching the earth with both hands. Exactly. Fell sprawling in the dust mm-hmm. as you're clutching the earth. And then uh, and then you've got this idea of like the darkness of death enfolded him round about. I think that's also a repeated phrase. Yeah. Though the interesting thing about that is it almost the idea of the darkness of death coming in suggests some kind of conscious awareness of death, which if we go back to uh, our old episodes on bicameralism in the Iliad, would seem to go counter Julian Jane's ideas that you don't see indications of consciousness in the Iliad. Though then again, it's hard to read exactly what that means. Right. And then, of course, you could also you could also argue that, well, this could these could be details that were added uh, later and don't don't relate to the oldest uh, oral traditions of the Iliad. I guess that would depend on what the the scholars of the text have to say about that. Uh, but yeah, it, it's so interesting that you see all of this horrific violence in the Iliad, but there's also a weird kind of clinical quality to it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. when the spear goes into somebody, it, it describes in disgusting detail all of the things that happen to the bodies and the behavior that responds to it. But we really don't get a lot of a sense of what it feels like to be harmed in battle in the Iliad. Yeah, it's more like a blow by blow, like you're, you're reading the results of a, of a boxing match or an MMA match or something. It, you know, it reminds me, too, of a trend that you encounter in Arthurian legend. Uh, 
I can't remember which text it was, but I, I took a course on Arthurian legends in, back in college, and I remember there there being one book, one one version of the tales in particular that was just hideously violent, with a lot of people being like stabbed through to the brain. And of course, with those tales, you find you know equally examples where it's more about the feeling, it's more about the characters and and their emotions in other tellings. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there. There, there's so much that the idea of pain in battle or, or violent wounding in, in literature is bound up with, which is that it's not just like burning your hand on the stove, right? Mm-hmm. When you burn your hand on the stove and you're like, ow, and you retract your hand and it's almost a reflexive action. Your brain has been fed information that something is being harmed and you want to stop it as soon as possible and you retreat. In these battle stories, the idea of pain is, is so deeply emotional and, and linked up with things like fear, fear of death, uh, sort of the recognition of one's own vulnerability mm-hmm. and maybe, uh, contemplating the end of one's own life. But you contrast that with these painless, almost robotic soldiers that we see throughout so much of the war literature, especially of the ancient world, like in the yeah. Iliad. Yeah, and the, the the crazy thing, and one of the things that we're going to discuss at length in this episode is that yeah, you see this this sort of ancient trope of the the, the kind of painless soldier, or soldier that is at least not experiencing their pain in the heat of the moment. Right. Even if it doesn't say that they're painless, at least we're it's not interested in telling us about the pain. It's right. just like it's almost like describing a battle bots or something. Yeah. And then, but then when you look at uh, where we are now. Uh, well, I mean, you can you can go crazy looking at the various uh, video game scenarios here. We, we mm-hmm. have, we, I think we've discussed this on the show before. You have very few uh, war games that are really concerned with uh, like a, like an emotional level of pain, or certainly with things like PTSD. Uh, and then uh, we look to the future, and whether you're dealing with actual military research or just uh, science fiction scenarios, the idea of a, of a painless super soldier, a soldier who doesn't feel remorse or pain, we keep coming back to that again and again, be it in something like The Terminator or uh, the, the Universal Soldier movies. Yeah, that is a thing that often in our movies today, they, they think that they make the villain scarier if the villain doesn't seem to react to pain. I don't know if that's actually always the case. Uh, a villain who doesn't seem to react to pain, one example I know you gave, Robert, is in the, the movie and the book No Country for Old Men. It's definitely there in the movie where you see Javier Bardem is playing this assassin character. Yeah, and, Anton Chigurh. Yeah, uh, yeah Chigurh, Chigurh. Chigurh. Yeah, and he, uh, like, because uh, Josh Brolin tries to call him Sugar. Oh, yes, yeah. yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so Anton Chigurh, he gets like shot and all his body parts and stuff. And he's doing surgery on himself and he's mm-hmm. like barely flinching. And I guess, I don't know, I think that's a great movie, but I do think that part is kind of funny looking back on it now because it's like, ooh, he's so tough. He does surgery on himself and it doesn't even hurt. I don't know. Maybe we should be just as scared or more scared of a of an assassin who feels normal pain and can lash out emotionally in response to it. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's the it's the relentless nature uh, of the character. Right. The idea that that it it cannot be it it cannot be stopped uh, in the same way a normal human can be stopped. It can't be deterred in the normal way. Like you, you can't count on it just reaching the point where he's saying, oh, this is too painful a scenario. This is too painful a mission for me to keep going with. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, of course, I it, guess that's the Terminator, right? Yeah. The, ter- the Terminator will not stop. It doesn't feel pain. It doesn't feel pity. It doesn't mm-hmm. feel remorse. It will not stop until it accomplishes its mission. And yet, as we know from Terminator 2, Arnold Schwarzenegger does tell us, uh, uh, I sense injuries. The data could be called pain. Huh. I forgot about that. Well, so he says he's aware of when he gets hurt, but it just doesn't stop him from doing anything, you know? Yeah, well, in this we're getting down to the key purpose of pain, that pain is information about damage and potential damage and potential uh, uh, additional damage that is happening to the body. So think about the idea of a Terminator that does not sense injuries. Mm -hmm. That's not a very good Terminator, right? (laughs) Like you could blow its arm off and then it would like maybe still try to hit you with that arm and not even realize it doesn't have one. Yeah. So in a way it comes down – you could look at – 
at, at the Anton Sugar character as being just so hyper focused on the mission that that pain doesn't matter. Right. Pain doesn't have this additional connotation of of like, oh man, I wonder if my my arm's going to work right anymore, or is this going to keep hurting? Uh, uh, it's more about is this keeping me from continuing this mission is this is this stopping me in any way no it's not and i'm going to keep moving right so there definitely does appear to be more to pain than just the sensation of injuries we should come back to those multiple layers in a minute but i can't leave the discussion of the painless super soldier without mentioning the villain in maybe one of the stupidest of many extremely stupid (laughs) james bond movies do you remember the world is not enough from the 90s is this the one that had madonna in it i don't remember. I don't. I don't even recall the, one had Madonna in it. This one had Denise Richards in it. Was Jonathan Price the villain in this one? No, 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 no. Okay. No, that is uh, Tomorrow Never Dies. I okay. think that's the one where the villain is an evil media mogul who keeps writing headlines that are causing wars. Yeah, yeah. I saw that one, <laughs> but I did not see the one that came after that. So that this, this may be yeah. one that's a gap in my Bond uh, uh, movie viewing history. You know, they're all kind of dumb, but this is. Definitely not one of the best. Uh, this is one of the dumbest of the dumb. And it's got like it's got something about a nuclear submarine. I don't even remember the plot. But anyway, the villain in it is this guy who feels no pain. He's got some kind of injury or condition mm-hmm. that prevents him from feeling pain. And this pre- this is presented as so tough and so cool. Wow. He can't feel pain. He's nothing can stop him. Right. And the the fact is. That might sound like a superpower, but it is not a superpower at all. If there were actually a person who could not feel pain, and in fact, I don't need to say if there were, there are actually people who don't feel pain or don't, who generally don't feel pain in the same way we do. Like there's a condition called congenital analgesia or congenital insensitivity to pain. These people are born with a genetic condition that prevents them from feeling pain normally. It's not a superpower. It's a really unfortunate condition. If you don't have this condition, you definitely don't want it because people with genetic insensitivity to pain usually can't detect when their body is being injured. So they tend to accumulate untreated injuries and diseases over time without properly seeking treatment or allowing them to heal. Imagine, you know, so you might think, oh, I hurt my leg playing soccer or something Mm -hmm. and I I wish it would stop hurting, but in a way, it's good that it keeps hurting because that prevents you from putting too much weight on it or something, which would continue to maybe exacerbate the injury that you initially had and make the leg less usable and more and more injured over time. Yeah, you hear accounts of people in various uh, athletic or sporting uh, scenarios where they push through the pain. Yeah, and and they're that, that's not good. Yeah, yeah, they're they're. There are, there are, there are definite cases where pushing through the pain ends up lengthening the recovery time for an injury and making the injury more severe, mm-hmm. uh, because they were ignoring the signal from the, the site of the injury that said, stop using this limb, uh, you know, don't keep going in this particular, uh, uh, athletic scenario. I mean, I can understand the idea of wanting to encourage perseverance in people. Mm-hmm. Perseverance is an important thing for, for achieving your goals and all that. But there's a difference between perseverance and continuing to hit the punching bag after you've broken a couple of your fingers. Yeah. But tell that to the warriors of the alien. Right. Exactly. You know, so congenital analgesia is actually, it's very unfortunate for the people who have it, but, there, there are interesting things about it that it reveals about our nature and, and what we would do if we didn't have access to the data gathered by our pain sensation. Like one thing I've read about is children with congenital analgesia will often injure their own mouths or fingers by biting them. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, you hear about this sometimes, too, with uh, people who have been numbed up for various uh, procedures. You know, mm-hmm. you have to one has to be careful about, say, chewing the inside of your your, uh, your cheek. Yeah, uh, while you're all numbed, numbed up. I'm not sure quite what it is yet. I feel like I'm I'm tapping something kind of yeah. interesting there because it seems that there's this drive within us to perform certain behaviors that if unchecked by the feedback of pain would naturally be self-destructive, maybe self-grooming behaviors or yeah. even just nervous behaviors. Yeah, indeed. At what point does um does the relief of scratching become the irritation of scratching and then become the the pain? Of scratching, you know, it's it's sort of by degree that one descends uh, um, ever towards the pain. 
Scratching is a good example, though, because it shows that there are certain mental priming conditions mm-hmm. that that modulate how we feel pain. Like, for example, if you've got an itch, you will be more able to tolerate repeated scratching behavior on the side of the itch than you would if you didn't have an itch there. Like, if you try to scratch yourself mm-hmm. just on the arm or something as much as you would if it was itching real bad, but it's not itching, it starts to hurt and you need to stop. But uh, but the brain, because it's itching, just sort of like cuts that off, right? It says, yeah. no, keep going. So obviously we're talking about itching here <laughs> in, in reference to pain. Uh, before we proceed any, any further with this episode, I do want to drive home the fact that obviously Joe and I are professional writers and podcasters. We uh, are not soldiers. Uh, we have, uh, I, I think it would be fair to say, limited experience with physical pain. Um, and I know that various listeners out there are either uh, active uh, members of the military or they have served in the military or have experience with intense pain, maybe even chronic pain. So uh, I just want to go ahead and get that out there, make that that obvious and say that, yes, if if you have additional insight based on this episode due to your own experiences with pain, we would love to hear from you. So one of my favorite books on the topic of pain uh, that I've, I've actually mentioned on the podcast in the past is Elaine Scarry's The Body in Pain. This is a dense and deep uh, meditation on the vulnerability of the human body. And she she points out that when you compare pain to other psychic, somatic, or perceptional states, it's the only one that has no object. Yeah, interesting. Uh, this, is, this is a quote from the book. The objectlessness... The complete absence of referential content almost prevents it from being rendered in language. Objectless, it cannot easily be objectified in any form, material or verbal. But it is also its objectlessness that may give rise to imagining by first occasioning the process that eventually brings forth the dense sea of artifacts and symbols that we make and move about in. And then she continues, the only state that is as anomalous as pain is the imagination. That's very interesting. And I think there's some truth to that. Now, obviously, you can think of the idea of pain as something that would have an object in some scenarios, Mm -hmm. as in, uh, you know, something similar to touch. Like if there's a source of heat on the hand, that could be pain and that could maybe be thought of as an object. But then again, pain can exist independent of a specific stimulus like that. It's just – it's almost like the pain takes place in a theater of the mind that's deeply connected with the experience of touch in the body. Yeah. I I love how she compares it to imagination here. Uh, And uh, it reminds me of the the theories of uh, our old friend, uh, American uh, psychologist Julian Jaynes. Yeah, who we just mentioned earlier. Yeah, who wrote of uh, imagination and the, the, quote, dance of the self. Uh, As you probably remember from our episodes on the bicameral mind, uh, he explored the idea that ancient humans were not conscious in the modern sense of the word and that prior to roughly uh, 1200 BCE, the brain used language to convey experience from the right to left hemisphere. Modern consciousness, therefore, is a learned development tied to metaphorical language. Yeah. So the idea here was that we modern humans use conscious thought to entertain and simulate responses to novel stimuli. So when something new and unexpected happens and you can't deal with it just by, you know, sort of like rote learned behavior and you Mm -hmm. need to do something novel, we think about it, right? We have a conscious experience where we try to work out what to do. Whereas pre-conscious people instead would have this bicameral situation. They would encounter a situation that called for novel behavior and instead they would experience a hallucinated voice that would internally tell them what to do. And Jane's belief this to be the non-dominant hemisphere of the brain synthesizing information and planning behavior and then delivering those behaviors as hallucinated commands to the dominant hemisphere to be acted out. And of course, he called this hypothetical unconscious hallucinating past human a bicameral person. But if you go with Jane's hypothesis, which, of course, is is unproven, it's a very interesting hypothesis, but I think we're still waiting for, you know, more good evidence to evaluate its merits. But since we've established that so much of what we think about when we think about pain is not just the sensory uh, data, but some kind of conscious experience, some relationship to the imagination, that his theory would 
definitely change what uh, like a bicameral person would have to experience pain differently right yeah yeah and he uh, he actually considered this a little bit uh, he 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 wrote a, a paper titled uh, sensory pain and conscious pain and it was published in a 1985 edition of behavioral and brain sciences uh, in this, he discussed the differences between sensory pain and conscious pain. On one hand, we have pain with a purpose. Pain is uh, an instructional sensation intended to alert us to harm. You can call it a, depending on you know where, where you're approaching it from, you may call it acute pain or uh, uh, no, nociceptive pain or sensory pain, as Jane's like to call it. But then there's chronic pain. Uh, psychological pain, or as Jane's calls it, conscious pain. And, and this is where we have a, would have a conscious reaction to the sensory pain. Okay, so in Jane's formulation, the Terminator would probably be kind of like the bicameral person, right? Who might, who would have access to sensory pain. I sense injuries. The data could be called pain. But the pain doesn't necessarily bother him, right, bother the Terminator. It doesn't, like, linger in the mind and have these echoing conscious effects through the imagination. It is just data that is received about something happening to the body right now. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm reluctant to go with a full-on Terminator explanation because I I think one of the – based on my readings of the bicameral mind, I I don't want to – I don't want to fall into the the habit of making it seem too much like the bicameral human is a complete machine, mm-hmm. and, a, and you know, and a, they are inhuman. Uh, but uh, but anyway, in this paper, Jane's he explores this idea. It's important to note that a lot of this is Jane's just asking questions in this right. paper. He's not saying this is my definite theory on uh, on pain sensation in ancient peoples. He's saying, well, uh, I have this theory called bicameral the bicameral mind. Perhaps you've heard of it. Mm-hmm. Um, here are some questions I have about about pain. How would this apply? Yeah, yeah. and uh, and so he he draws on some examples. He uh, f- from his his typical resources, uh, generally uh, uh, you know ancient uh, you know, classical history, and he points out that we find no examples of chronic pain in ancient literature. And he points to a few examples to support this idea. He says that uh, ancient Proto-Indo-European languages before around 2000 BCE had no word for pain or hurt at all, only for cuts and wounds. I wonder if that's true. Uh, experts out there listening yeah. of, of ancient languages, does that is that true to you? Or uh, or can you think of counterexamples? Yeah, I would lo- I would love to hear. Uh, and you know, James, I sh- we should also point out uh, he ad- admitted pretty openly that he he did not speak, say, Mandarin or or Hindi. So he 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 himself did not explore uh, evidence for or against uh, his theories uh, with any real depth in those cultures. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you have a if you have some linguistic uh, evidence uh, from either of those cultures or other cultures that James didn't cover, I'd love to, to hear from you. He also points out that the oldest parts of the Iliad written down in 850 BCE uh, based on older oral traditions, uh, that in these uh, cases we have extremely gory depictions of battle wounds but hardly any notice of discomfort. In these examples, he says pain is merely pain behavior. Now, I did a quick search to see what was mentioned about pain in the Iliad, and I found plenty of examples of what seemed to me to be something like conscious pain. Just one example is when a wounded King Menelaus Mm -hmm. is promised that he'll be given herbs by a surgeon to relieve his pain from wounds. So that sounds like conscious pain to me, right? Yeah. Like if he's seeking relief of the pain through some kind of medication, that would indicate consciousness of the pain. But – then again, perhaps these are references. Uh, these references might be parts of the narrative that are what what Jane's is considering later additions to the manuscript tradition, and not part of the early core of the text. I, I don't know enough about the manuscript history of the Iliad to speculate on that. Yeah, it could conceivably be an example of an editor coming along and saying, "Shouldn't we add something about how this feels here? This seems like a rather painful situation." And there are plenty of examples of that kind of thing in the ancient world. Like a lot of ancient texts appear to be composed in multiple stages. Yeah. Now, again, in all of this, James was was asking a lot of questions, and he uh, he points out that if this were the case, it would mean that infants and animals would be incapable of true chronic pain, such as, for instance, phantom limbs. Hmm. Uh, so uh, if anyone out there has any additional information on that, I would love to hear from you. I did some uh, some brief research on the matter, and I could not find any accounts of animals with phantom limbs where you know where an individual has lost a limb and is experiencing uh 
the sensation of pain from where that limb should be. Now, as I've said on the podcast before, I always want to be careful about the bicameral mind, maybe mainly because it's one of those things that's so interesting. I feel like I have to be suspicious of it. You know, I have to yeah. be too careful that I'm not uh, getting sucked in by it just because it's fascinating and fun to think about. Uh, but of course, as we, as we said before, it, it remains unproven. Uh, I think the jury's still out about where the evidence fits into the hypothesis, but it is always interesting to play around with. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd love to come back to it at some point and, and discuss it a bit more on the show. Uh, now one, one thing to keep in mind in all of this is that you know, we're talking about James's take on this sort of dual system of pain. And uh, no matter what the status of uh, James's larger theory is, the dual systems of pain, this is widely accepted. And it gives us an idea of what war without pain in the ancient world or in the, uh, the not-too-distant future might be like. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will discuss this pain that uh, is all in your head. All right, we're back. You know, pain can be more tricky to define than you might think because pain is something you definitely know when you experience it. Mm -hmm. But if you're trying to, like, put down an objective third-party definition that will cover everything that is pain and not cover anything that is not pain, it gets kind of difficult, right? Like, oh, yeah. What is the difference between pain and discomfort? If you've got your leg tucked up under you while you're sitting in a chair and over time that leg starts to feel not good and you want to move it because it's been stuck that way for a while, is that pain or is that discomfort and what's the difference yeah i mean this is encountered all the time by medical professionals trying to to diagnose uh, an illness like determining all right well where does where does your pain uh scale on say a one to ten yeah and then how am i supposed to use that information but then what is a what is one to ten for you yeah i feel like when i'm asked that by a physician i'm always like well obviously i have not felt anything from a you know a, a, an eight up so i'm not going to classify uh, anything I've, I'm feeling now uh, that high on the scale. But some people might start with a 10. Yeah. I, and then you will, and it's also like a, an example that comes to mind is, is during yoga. Mm -hmm. um, the, generally, what most yoga practitioners will say is, you know, don't do anything that feels painful. If you're, if you're experiencing pain, you need to pull back. Right. But uh, I see this all uh, occasionally with individuals who are taking classes that I'm in. Is I'll see that they're, there are some people who think it is more tolerable to push through a certain amount of, of discomfort into pain yeah. where they're not just merely working the body part, but they are they are working it too hard, but they don't realize they should back up. So we all have this. We all have a different. It's almost like we all have a different translation of the pain, a different kind of em emotional translation of the basic information that uh, our, our mind is presented with. On the other end of the scale, I guess going into the more conscious or, or chronic type thing that we were discussing earlier, pain – like what's the difference between pain and fear mm. or pain and sadness and all these emotions that – I mean there are cases where there seems to be a relationship between the idea of somatic pain. Like I've got chronic pain in my body mm -hmm. and I, I can't move, like it hurts to move about, can be deeply linked to psychological conditions in the brain like depression. Yeah. And yet everything is getting rolled up under this rubric of pain, which is, uh, you know, essentially pain at its most basic level is, as we've said, information. It tells you about when something is being injured or is suffering a disease. But anyway, just to get a definition on the table uh, that we can maybe work with, the International Association for the Study of Pain says that, quote, pain is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience that is associated with actual or potential tissue damage or described in such terms. Okay. That last clause seems to do a lot of work, huh? Yeah, that, that kind of twists it, it kind of expands the umbrella of the definition, doesn't it? Yeah. But I think it's interesting there that even in their definition, they roll up the emotional experience with the idea of the sensory experience, right? Like it's it's totally baked in. Indeed. But do we see that in the origin of the word itself? Well, I was wondering about this. So the origins of the English word pain do not come from the idea of sensations in the body. Uh, the word pain originally comes from Latin poena or uh, 
pena meaning punishment or penalty. Mm. And you can think about this in if you think about like the archaic usages of pain in in medieval language, right? Uh, what what happens to you if you break the king's laws? Well, you break them on pain of death. It's like the the penalty specified for something. Yeah, and of course when you think about uh, official um punishment either in the term you know be, be it a you know, public execution or some sort of public torment mm-hmm. there's there's generally some sort of arguably emotional context to it some sort of humiliation that is involved or at least something instructional for mm-hmm. the society it's been pointed out to me before that you look back on these various uh, modes of of public punishment or public execution and there's always there there's always some level of drama there. There's some level of uh, instruction that is baked into it that uh, the individuals perceiving uh, the act or hearing of it would uh, would be privy to. Well, I mean, you think about this in depictions of hell in yeah. the ancient world. I uh, think of either, say, Dante's Inferno or if you look at like some of the apocryphal uh, gospels and revelations where they see visions of hell, I'm thinking there's like a there's some early apocalypse of Peter. It's not in the Bible. It's this mm-hmm. apocryphal text, but where Jesus reveals visions of hell to Peter. And in a lot of these stories, you get very ironic punishment. So it's not just that a wicked person or an unredeemed person is being punished in hell in a kind of generally unpleasant way. But the pain that is inflicted on them seems to have some ironic relationship to what they did wrong. Yeah. You know, uh, blasphemers will have their mouths burned or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Now, of course, in all of this, again, pain is information. And then the brain receives that information and decides what sort of attention it deserves. So if the br- if the brain were running a newspaper, it would decide whether uh, it demanded front page treatment, if it went above or below the fold, and how big the font needed to be. Yeah. Uh, and in the same way that a newspaper editor might enhance or downplay a bit of news, so too does the brain determine whether a particular pain signal at a given point should be amplified or reduced. Right. Uh, I mean, this might be given in our scratching example. Right. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes you scratch too much and that feels really bad. But if you've got an itch, the brain just says, OK, go go ahead go to town. Yeah, it's kind of like an itch would be below the fold story like uh, mosquito bite uh, uh, produces mild uh, um, ir- uh, irritation for the human. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then once you've scratched it enough, it gets above the fold and said, said dumb human has scratched mosquito bite to the point of uh, of of actual physical pain. But then you go back to the brain like you made me do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's your fault. Ah, uh, yeah, that, that's the media at work. The it? scratching yeah. should have hurt earlier. <laughs> now, as pointed out by uh, David Linden, a, a professor of neuroscience at John Hopkins University, we we see we see this in battle scenarios all the time, uh, and you can uh, you can easily argue that this is what's happening in the Iliad. A soldier receives a wound and barely feel, feels it at all, at least at that time, and then later they might recoil at the prick of a doctor's needle during treatment. Mm-hmm. So the brain here, of course, is using two systems to process incoming pain signals. One system determines location, intensity, and characteristics. So to go back to our Iliad example, uh, Enemus, uh, his brain registers intense smoting damage to his lower abdomen. Smoting damage. Yeah. And then meanwhile, you have this other system that deals with the emotional character- characteristics of the wound. And this would be uh, Enemus thinking, by the gods, a Dominius, that Cretan villain, just sliced me open and I'm dying so far from the kingdom of, of Pisa, <laughs> falling into the kingdom of the dead, etc. Uh-huh. Right? There's this emotional con- context to the injury. Uh, and so these two systems work together and influence how we actually experience pain. If you feel safe, calm, and protected, then that can lessen the pain. Likewise, Linden points out that humiliation uh, and an unpredictable schedule of pain, uh, these have aided torturers uh, for centuries, uh, being able to you know, make the, the torture victim feel like they, they don't know when the pain is going to come at them and adding this just intensified emotional context to it. Oh, totally. I mean, the emotional context of pain is... Incredibly powerful. And here's something I bet a lot of you out there have experienced. Robert, I wonder if this has ever happened to you. You ever go to the doctor with a pain that you're worried about? Like something's hurting on your body. You don't know what's causing it. You go to the doctor. Doctor looks at it, 
says, can't find anything wrong, and the pain just goes away. <laughs> uh, well, I don't Almost, know. Like immediately. I, I don't think I've had that exact scenario, but I have had situations where like I have a shoulder problem that uh-huh. it was bothering me for a while. Went to the doctor, and they were like, I don't know. We can't figure it out. Uh, we could do more tests, I guess. And so I just, I was just kind of at that point, I said, well, I guess I'll just keep doing what I'm doing and see what happens. And it went away. Yeah. So maybe that's like a less uh, direct uh, uh, manifestation of the same thing. Uh, I mean, I, I think I, I've heard about other people telling stories like this before where you've just got some complaint in your body. Often it is a pain that seems to be localized somewhere. And as soon as you're told it's nothing to worry about, it basically just leaves you. Yeah, well, I mean, not only are you being told not to worry about it, but you're going to a place where you're going to feel uh, rather safe yeah. and control. Like even before the doctor looks at you, you're in an environment uh, of perceived safety regarding the injury. Like well, at least now I'm um, among the experts and they'll be able to weigh in on it. But if it can leave like that, that makes you wonder where did it come from, mm-hmm. right? What caused this thing to make my brain think I was hurting in a place where as soon as I was told I didn't actually need to be hurting there, I stopped hurting. Well, you know, we're not going to get into faith healers in this episode, but it does make one think of all the various, uh, you know, religious healers throughout history who, oh, have, yeah. who have either just merely laid hands on an injury um, or, you know, or on a forehead mm-hmm. or or administered some form of treatment that ultimately is nothing more than placebo. But another big way that psychology, that like the state of the mind can influence the experience of pain can be not just like the relief of pain, but like failing to notice pain to begin with, right? Yeah, and uh, we have accounts of that from throughout recorded history. One of the most frequently quoted passages uh, about this comes from the Roman philosopher uh, Lucretius from uh, around, uh, he lived 94 through 55 BCE. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's talking about the the scythed to chariots. So these chariots with these big rolling blades, you know, on their uh, on the wheels. Uh, it said the, the scythe chariots reeking with indiscriminate slaughter suddenly chop off the limbs. Such is the quickness of the injury and the eagerness of the man's mind that he cannot feel the pain. And because his mind is given over to the zest of battle, maimed though he be, he plunges afresh into the fray and the slaughter. Uh, I know in reality that's not funny, but the zest of battle... Yeah, it, the zest. it makes it sound like a soap commercial, right? Right, like zesty battle dressing. Yes, zestfully dead, uh, that sort of thing. Um, but so the idea there is that a, a really rapidly inflicted wound on a soldier who's engaged in the heat of battle, like if it chops their arm off, they might not even notice. They just keep trying to fight. Yeah, and it's only later that they may experience the emotional pain of right. what's happening. So I was I was reading uh, uh, something some information about this and Joanna Bork writing for the conversation uh, she points uh, to surgeon A uh, uh, Copland uh, Hutchinson's writings in 1816s some practical observations in surgery and he wrote that soldiers and seamen with limbs that required amputation didn't realize the extent of the damage quote at the time of their being wounded, they were scarcely sensible of the, the circumstance till informed of the extent of their misfortune by the inability of moving their limb. Mm. So war surgeons, uh, they've tended to chalk this up to the excitement of battle, that zest of, of battle, or to uh, the ideological ideals that animated them. Right. Uh, or to the uh, the psychological effects uh, that, that ba- uh, of the battle that put them in a sort of trance, you know. Right. Now, we mentioned uh, the, the placebo effect briefly. Uh, the, the father of the placebo effect was uh, anesthetist Henry K. Beecher, uh, who questioned some 215 wounded men in Italy between 1943 and 1945, and he found no necessary correlation between the severity of the wound and the amount of pain that the men expressed. So yet again, it seems to be highly contingent on psychological factors. Right. Yeah. You can't just say, okay, this is, this is the amount of discomfort that is, uh, that accompanies, uh, say, uh, the loss of a hand. Yeah. Uh, w- which is funny because that seems to make it very difficult to create a standardized scale of pain. Yeah. Which are, you mentioned the one to 10 scale to ask you at the doctor's office or at the hospital. Uh, I've thought about before, like, uh, there have been attempts to rate on a standardized scale how much it hurts to get 
attacked by certain types of insects. Have yes. you ever read about yeah, this? Yeah, the, the, the pain. Uh, what is it? The sting scale. I don't. I don't recall exactly who the researcher was, but there was a guy who put one of these together, mm-hmm. and he was like, oh, "I've been attacked by a bullet ant and a tarantula hawk and all of the worst uh, insects, and I've ranked them." on a scale of how bad it hurts. And it just seems like you can't actually do that, can you? Like some things probably will reliably hurt most of the time more than other things, but pain is very much in the brain of the receiver of the injury. Yeah, and we're still trying to figure out how the brain regulates our individual perceptions of pain. Mm-hmm. Now, now Beecher himself, he initially expected that the men who expressed little or no pain were insensitive due to some chemical or hormonal imbalance. But he later theorized that they were, they were not suffering or were suffering less because to be injured and off the front lines uh, during this time was to be safe, to be removed from the prime place of danger. Huh. Now, you compare that to the average civilian situation where if you're suddenly in a hospital, you were, you were in the place of danger. You were in the place where people... Uh, not always, but a, a place where people may often die. This is the place of injury, the place of, uh, of, I mean, not only a physical injury, but say emotional, financial injury, all the, these, uh, these anxieties that are swarming around actual physical ailment. Whereas again, on the front lines of battle, if you are in the hospital, then you are in a place of safety. Wow, I can't believe, I've never thought about it like that before, but that does make sense. Yeah, yeah. And so, Beecher's work and that of others, they reveal the truth of the matter. Emotions matter in war. Fear and and anxiety matter in war. Yeah. But then what are we to do with it, both for the betterment of humanity uh, and to improve our ability to wage war? Well, yeah, you can think about this in two very different ways. So we have the idea of people who are always going to be injured and harmed in war. And so there's sort of like the, the, the good magic of coming up with ways to relieve chronic pain for people, especially people who have been injured in battle. You want them to be able to live normal lives, to live without pain and suffering. And mm-hmm. like, how can we help them? And then there's the the darker magic aspect of it, which is people trying to figure out how can I make more effective soldiers who are not hampered by pain? Yeah, we see this time and time again, of course, with technology. Uh, you can look to the, see the, the advancements in chemistry from the, the 19th and early 20th century, mm-hmm. uh, advancements that were uh, you, you, you essentially had the chemistry of life and then you had the chemistry of death. It yeah. Some of our most uh, nefarious chemical weapons. Exactly. And so maybe you're wondering, like, wait a minute, why would trying to create a soldier who doesn't feel pain on the battlefield, like, why would that be the dark magic? Why why would you be worried about that? Isn't that good if they're not feeling pain? I would say no, not necessarily, because we come back to yet again, pain is important information on the battlefield. You don't want people who have left the battlefield to have to feel chronic pain all their lives, right? right? You would like to be able to give them relief for that. But if you're in the heat of battle, if you're still in a situation where threats are continuously coming your way and you haven't made it back to the hospital or back to your regular life, pain is important. That's something you need to know that could save your life. If you're not, if you're not getting the data and if you're not, uh, fe- feeling the pain that will help prevent you from, uh, you know, moving forward with a life threatening, threatening injury, you are putting yourself at risk. Indeed. And of course, there are some additional ethical concerns there that we'll we'll get to later on in the episode. All right. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll discuss uh, some of the some past examples of attempts to uh, manipulate the way that we feel pain, uh, as well as some uh, some current and near future advancements that might change the way soldiers experience pain. All right, we're back. Now, on this podcast, we've covered pharmacological alterations of soldiers for better service, right? I think, Robert, you and Christian did an episode on combat stims, right? Yes. Yes, we did. Like all of the drugs that uh, armed forces authorities have tried to make soldiers take in order to be more alert and more effective. With one notable exception, which we're going to correct in this episode, but yes. 
But obviously, one more way to enhance a soldier, at, again, as I said earlier, at the expense of their safety and long-term survival, is to make them unable to feel pain. Uh, but of course, just pumping a soldier full of like Oxycontin or Vicodin or morphine is running the risk of addiction and overdose. But also, these drugs come with side effects that could make soldiers less effective, right? Drowsiness, lethargy, complacency. Yeah, because you need your soldier to be effective in their role. Right. Uh, and uh, so whatever is correcting one uh, perceived uh, uh, area of weakness, you don't need it to weaken other areas as well. Right. So if you're one of these, you know, imagineers of war, the people who are trying to come up with ways for soldiers to press on in battle and continue to be more effective, Mm -hmm. often at the expense of the soldier themselves, one thing that would be amazing to come up with would be like a pain vaccine. Uh And there have apparently been efforts in exactly this area. So the defense journalist Annie Jacobson has a 2015 article in The Atlantic about attempts at DARPA over the years to re-engineer the human body for war. And here's one story she tells. In 1999, DARPA created a sub-department called the Defense Services Office, or the DSO, which was run by a biologist and venture capitalist named Michael J. Goldblatt, who, incidentally, I looked up what he's up to now. He appears more recently to have been appointed to the Scientific Advisory Board of an organization called Cannabis Science. Oh, okay. So he's he's gotten gotten away from the, the, the DARPA stuff. As far as we know. Now, Jacobson writes that Goldblatt, quote, believed that defense sciences could demonstrate that the next frontier was inside of our own selves, and he became a pioneer in military-based transhumanism, the notion that man can alter the human condition fundamentally by augmenting the body with machines and other means. Mm. And so Goldblatt's got this transhuman idea, but it sounds like he's working out the, the baby steps getting you towards transhumanism by starting starting with the military. Well, it's it's when you look at uh at where advancements take place, I mean it's it's pretty sensible. If you want to if you want the budget to uh to elevate uh, the human experience via technology, mm-hmm. uh, the the military is the right place to go for funding. I mean, honestly, when you look at a lot of these DARPA contracts, you really get the sense that a lot of the researchers working on this stuff are just trying to advance some obscure scientific uh, medical or technological field and they're coming up with whatever justifications they can to make it sound like this is relevant to military technology. Yeah, I mean, uh, not to use him as a as an example for all for all military uh, uh, researchers uh, by any means, but uh, we we of course explored that with John C. Lilly. Uh, he seemed to have always been interested about connecting with other minds and understanding what other mind states consisted of. Right. And early on in his career, that meant that meant working for the government and uh, and exploring some kind of frightening concepts. Yeah. Uh, he was he was game for it. I want some psychic dolphins. How can I get some war money to do it? <laughs> well. Sort of, yes. <laughs> no, sorry, that's not. <laughs> well, the, the the dolphins came later, but but uh, I mean, as we explored in that episode, certainly that's where the isolation tanks were born. Yeah. Uh, so going back to the story of the DSO, so Goldblatt ran the DSO until 2004. And when he spoke to Jacobson, uh, there were still many classified aspects of his work that he couldn't reveal. But he did say he believed that, quote, soldiers having no physical, psychological or cognitive limitation will be key to survival and operational dominance in the future. With the age of robotics, I'm not sure if many people would still say that's the case. Like if you just need no physical, psychological or cognitive limitations, I don't know. Maybe it'd be better to be putting robots in those risky scenarios. But well, I, but then but then you get into the the, the various uh, challenges to making the ideal robotic uh, combatant. Right? That's true. Well, humans can of course do many things that robots can't yet do. Right, and including make certain judgment calls, even though certain judgment calls are going to be challenging even to a human uh, in various combat scenarios, uh, especially in concerns when it concerns say non-combatants and being able to tell when. An individual is a non-combatant, yeah. et cetera. Right. So for if you had like ideal, uh, ideal ethical war, though, that seems like, you know, it's a difficult thing to try to work out. But mm-hmm. it would be full of ethical soldiers who were operating on ethical principles using human judgment that's difficult for robots to master. Right. 
But along the lines of what Goldblatt said, there was one DSO project, which was known as Persistence in Combat, and it sought to eliminate three problems that limit a soldier's effectiveness on the field of battle. And these problems are pain, wounds, and excessive bleeding. And for the pain part, quote, Goldblatt hired a biotechnology firm to develop a pain vaccine. If a soldier got shot, Goldblatt explained, the vaccine would, quote, reduce the pain triggered by inflammation and swelling, the desired result being, quote, 10 to 30 seconds of agony, then no pain for 30 days. So basically the level of uh, of 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 pain that Arnold Schwarzenegger's character experiences in the movie Commando, hmm. right? Where he's like shot in the shoulder and it's like, ah, oh, at first, but then he's just running around like normal. Right. Yeah. Okay. And of course, what's the goal of that? Well, Jacobson comes out and says the goal is that a vaccine like that would allow the fighter to continue fighting as long as the bleeding could be stopped. Okay. Again, this sounds like putting the soldier at more risk of death and permanent injury, but that seems to be what they were trying to figure out how to do. Uh, and as a side note, apparently their plan to immediately stop bleeding. Do you know what this was? No, do tell. Uh, on the battlefield, a soldier's bleeding a lot, and their plan was to inject the soldier with a payload of millions of tiny magnets, which could then be directed to coagulate in the blood with the positioning of a magnetic wand. Oh, so so either they would have a wand or there would be like a field medic that would come up and just sort of wand the wound, and then that would cause the, 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 the magnetic the, particles to assemble. Yeah. Wow. No word on whether that's still in development. Hmm. Now, we mentioned uh, the previous episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind that dealt with combat stems. Well, there was one particular uh, drug that we uh, we did not cover in that episode, and that was pervitine, an early version of what we now call crystal meth. And it was available <laughs> quite legally in Nazi Germany and used through, uh, throughout the military engine of the Third Reich. Crystal meth, huh? Yeah, essentially it, it was crystal. It was essentially a, a methamphetamine. Now, as Megan Gerber uh, pointed out in her uh, her excellent Atlantic article, uh, pilot salt. The Third Reich kept its soldiers alert with meth. Uh, the benefits went beyond mere wakefulness. Uh huh. So she uh, she writes that uh, author Heinrich Boll. Uh, an, influ- an influential post-World War II German writer, uh, he w- uh, wrote about this a, a bit. He was uh, conscripted into the German military in his early 20s. And uh, and at the time, even, he wrote about the use of pervitine. He said that when using the drug, he was able to forget for a while about the trials and tribulations of war. So it sounds like a numbing of numbing of psychological pain. Exactly. Now, at the time, uh, their Spiegel uh, described the drug produced by drug maker uh, Timler Verka as, quote, the ideal war drug. Uh, So so the idea is you would have an an army of euphoric soldiers. Uh, And the the German military pumped millions of these pills out to its troops, uh, where it was uh, also known as uh, as Panzerschokkolade, or tank chocolate, and pilot salt in the Luftwaffe. But uh, according to and according to Gerber, quote, between April and July of 1940, more than 35 million three milligram doses of pervitine were manufactured for the German army and air force. But again, this was this was essentially crystal meth. Uh, there were yeah. side effects, heart failure, psychotic phases, suicide. Uh, the, the British also experimented with, uh, with a, a similar substance, and they found that it resulted in just too much agitation, aggressiveness and impaired judgment. But as far as pain goes, well, uh, a 1948 article in the American Journal of Psychiatry, uh, it hits on a few points related to the, the, the emotional side of pain. Uh, the, the, uh, the paper states, quote, Pervitine produces an emotionally charged free flow of material, which may include painful memories, traumatic experiences, intimate personal fantasies, and delusional ideas. Most patients experience a dramatic relief of tension and feeling of relaxation. Mild depressions are often delayed. The psychologically rich response evoked by pervitine is helpful both diagnostically and therapeutically. Now, from this, though, it sounds like you're you're again coming down to an individual's pre-existing um, psychological state uh, and how they perceive pain, because it sounds like pervitine could suppress the emotional aspects of the pain or mm-hmm. cause them to surge up to the surface, depending on the individual. I mean, I would have to observe yet again, as we've seen with many of these things so far, the 
idea here seems not so much for the benefit of the soldier themselves, but for the benefit of the war aims as a whole at the expense of the soldier. Yes. Now, another idea that comes up uh, a lot in, uh, uh, in in the literature surrounding this topic is the, is the idea of an anti-remorse pill. Oh, that's a horrible idea. Yeah. Uh, I mean, because – but it makes sense, right? If fear and remorse interfere with a soldier's ability to inflict pain and, and or, or suffer pain themselves, then it would seem natural to simply remove it. Uh, but, of course, at the same time, nothing could be more unnatural. Right. So as 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 of now, there is no such thing uh, as a, a true anti-remorse pill. Uh, but uh, Columbia University researchers have isolated the gene behind a protein in mice that inhibits fear. And meanwhile, trauma-inducing uh, drugs have been trialed at uh, at Harvard University for car accident victims. Mm-hmm. Dr. Gregory Quirk of the University of Puerto Rico has experimented with the use of magnetic stimulation to aid pa- patients in unlearning fear. Uh, and these were just, uh, you know, a few examples brought up by Joe and Greta Bird in their 2005 article, Human Rights in the Military, The Chemical Soldier, that was published in uh, Alternative Law Review. Now, a quick note on on, uh, on uh, Dr. Gregory Quirk. Uh, his work uh, continues. Uh, he, since he, he continues his work uh, into pain. And uh, the study uh, mentioned above was the effect of repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation on fear extinction in rats. And that was published in the journal Neuroscience. His uh, findings suggested that, quote, repeated transcranial magnetic stimulation paired with trauma-reminding stimuli enhances fear extinction and that RTMS in conjunction with exposure therapy is potentially useful for facilitating extinction memory in the treatment of PTSD. So a, a lot of this research does seem to be aimed more at treating PTSD, which would certainly benefit soldiers. Uh, but but I wonder if it's a, a bit much to describe it as an anti-remorse pill. Well, yeah, what that conjures to mind is like a pill that you would give a soldier before going onto the battlefield so that they can like commit atrocities and not worry about it. Uh, if it's just to help a soldier after they've come home to like not experience PTSD, that sounds to me like a good thing. Yeah, but I guess it comes back down back again to the dual nature of technology. Like yeah. if. If you're working on the cure, then you're, then there's, then a lot of times the same science is involved in, uh, in creating a more effective poison. I guess that's true. I mean, you mentioned the idea of, uh, treating car accident victims. I mean, no matter what, if you are working on ways to, to help extinguish fear in the mind mm-hmm. and help people get over trauma, you can certainly see ways that that same knowledge and technology and medicine could be leveraged to try to get people to do things that they shouldn't want to do. Indeed. Now, in 2015, uh, uh, then-DARPA program manager Doug Weber challenged labs, quote, to develop tools that will establish direct communication and delivery of information to the nervous system. Uh, this, according to the Christian Science Monitor. The key reason here? To manipulate their nerves, enabling the control of blood pressure as well as the manipulation of adrenaline to curb fear and anxiety. And then Weber says, quote, that would be especially useful for our warfighters who have to deal with very stressful environments. So the challenge here is, of course, to create drugs and and drug delivery systems that operate with a certain amount of balance and dependability. You want your soldiers calm and collected, but not doped out or amped up to the point where they make irrational decisions. Likewise, you don't want crippling dependency or hangover effects. So so the the alchemy of the perfect soldier seems to be... uh, Rather detailed, you know. You 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 have to have your you want to have your soldier just right, and uh, and if you're trying to uh, manipulate the stats uh, in in one direction or the other, you risk putting the entire um, the, the entire algorithm out of balance. Now, I know we are in the last uh, minutes here, going to get into discussing the idea of super soldiers of the future. But before we go to that, I want to ask the question. If you are manipulating soldiers pharmacologically, technologically, trying to, to alter their psychology and their response to pain, if you're, you're making all these tweaks, are the interests of the, the soldier as a person who just wants to be a person and try to live their life always going to be at odds with the interests of the, the commanders and the people who are coming up with the war aims and the strategies? Are these things just inevitably in tension or could could there be scenarios where those interests are aligned, where they're the same thing? 
Well, certainly in this, we're getting into a, a number of the uh, the ethical concerns involved right. here. And luckily, there are individuals who have been writing about this and continue to write about this uh, in order to um, you know, inform the individuals who are in the position to make decisions about uh, our use of treatment and preventative measures for, for pain on the battlefield. In 2015, uh, Dave Schunk explored the idea in Ethics and the Enhanced Soldier of the Near Future for the Military Review. Mm-hmm. And uh, he made the, the following points. He said that, first of all, the soldier of the future likely will be enhanced through neuroscience, biotechnology, nanotechnology, genetics, and drugs. He said they will perform more like a machine than a human. And he says that there's a basic ethical problem with using therapeutic drugs for performance enhancement. But we have to also worry about the, quote, unforeseen ethical challenges uh, and the second and third order effects of such warfare. He says, what are the ethics of fighting an enemy-enhanced soldier who does not feel pain? Will the only way to stop that soldier in battle be to cause severe trauma or death? Yeah, this is sort of what I was imagining. So imagine on the other side of the battle, there are people who are coming at you, mm-hmm. and they are uh, they are also soldiers on their side. They're just doing what they're commanded by their commanders, and they've been given, say, a, a version of this pain vaccine that the DSO was trying to create. And you basically can't stop them without maiming or killing them. Yeah. And if the soldiers on your side have uh, have equal types of enhancements, you, maybe you can't be stopped without being maimed or killed. Does this increase the body count on both sides? Yeah, uh, Joe and Greta Bird in the 2005 article Human Rights in the Military, the Chemical Soldier, which we referenced earlier, they, they summarize this, this idea, this, this fear quite nicely. Quote, the context of 20th century warfare is characterized by a movement to dehumanize the enemy. The enemy does not have a face. Military training tends to turn the other into non-human and the self into the machine, in the sense that to be human is to have emotions of empathy, fear, and compassion and remorse. Both sides are dehumanized. And I mean, that, that's what we keep coming back again and again to again and again in this situation, is that you're not only dehumanizing the enemy, you're dehumanizing uh, uh, the, the, the military on your side as well. Right. You're talking about making them less human to better aid them in this endeavor. Well, there are a lot of conventions of military behavior that are clearly premised on psychological de-individuation, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, why does the military all wear matching uniforms? You could think, well, that's somewhat useful because you can see who's on your side if they've got the same uniform. But also, when people put on uniforms, they start to act more like a team and less like an individual making individual decisions. Right. You're more just sort of like a cog in the machine functioning smoothly. Now, that might be useful in getting some things done, but it also might remove some of your individual sense of judgment about what you should do. And this, of course, isn't just like a recent discovery, like, you know, these types of uniforms and things like this go way back into ancient history. Yeah. Now, to go back to the uh, the, the writings of uh, Joe and Greta Bird here, they said remorse is regarded as a marker of the psychologically healthy individual. The failure to experience this emotion is an indication of uh, psychopathy. If an Anti-remorse drug is developed and administered as soldiers' sense of remorse could be chemically altered so that they could kill or rape civilians in the context of war without the guilt experienced by healthy individuals. This chemical enhancement of soldiers would not affect a state's liability at international law. So, uh, which was again one of the, the the primary ideas here, because it was an alternate law journal. But uh, but still, I, I feel like they really hit a nerve here talking about this the, the dehumanizing aspect of the, these this kind of scenario where you're creating a better soldier, and a, but in doing so, you're creating a less human soldier. And then, what does that do to war as a human enterprise uh, as a whole? Well, yeah, it just makes me worry that obviously the removal of chronic pain from a person who's returned to civilian life, that seems like definitely a good thing. Um, but then again, the removal of pain from war seems in every conceivable way to potentially make war worse, to mean more people would end up being killed, more uh, questionable ethical situations would arise. It, ju- it just seems like it uh, – 
it it is a lubricant on the process of war and the process of war ultimately is not a good process it's like a thing that you want to limit the extent of however possible right yeah i mean we, i mean certainly there's a whole discussion here to be had about the use of drones in combat um and i guess ideally if you had drones battling drones yeah without any human element involved which i is Largely not what we see in the current state of drone warfare. It is generally drones versus humans. Humans, uh, but if it were just drones against drones, then I guess you could say, all right, well, less fewer humans are being hurt, and it's all taking place at the robotic end. Like a, I think there's a classic episode of Star Trek that explored a similar scenario. Let me try to explore a counter scenario. What because it seems to me that every time you make war easier. Mm-hmm things somehow get worse without you imagining it. Like you can imagine the introduction of air power in some ways made war easier. So now you could inflict massive damage on the enemy by dropping bombs without having to like physically send soldiers into an area. And yet, you know, that might sound more humane, but actually it leads to more deaths in war over time just because it's so much easier to inflict all that damage. So let's say we make it way, way, way easier and you don't even have to have human soldiers in battle. It's just your drones versus their drones. Well, I'm thinking even more. So if you have robot versus robot warfare, then that would maybe lead to even more destruction of infrastructure, which has downstream effects on public health and on the ability of economies to produce the necessities of life and things like that. Yeah. It seems like part of the problem is that war, that pain is a necessary part of war. Yeah. I mean, you can think of, in, in a way, you have to think of war as this, this sort of infection on the, the body of humanity, right? Mm-hmm. And it needs, it hurts and it needs to hurt because uh, if there is too much of it, then it totally ravages the host. Uh, it, there, there has to be a, a, a certain amount of pain associated with it, and a and a pain that is uh, that is appreciated at, uh, at at every level of society. I absolutely see that, and I think I agree with that in the abstract. But then again, if you come down to the individual level, an individual cert, uh, soldier may be hurting, and they don't want to hurt anymore, and it's hard to argue with that. Yeah. So that's kind of the the, the, the conundrum that we're we're perpetually stuck with, right? Yeah. How to how to help those that are that are damaged by war, how to prevent war, but also make sure that we're really good at it. Uh, gosh, I mean, it, it's all kind of intertangled, too, uh, when you get into uh, the idea of, uh, of a military uh, technology as a deterrent. But in all of this, and I realize that we cover a lot of ground in this episode, I feel like we keep coming back to the idea that to make a more perfect warrior, we kind of have to be willing to make a more damaged person. Because what sort of soldier outside of our sort of Captain America fantasies can be pushed and pushed and pushed uh, through traumatic situations without either breaking or being pre-broken? And it would seem we're talking about the best ways to create the sort of damaged person who can thrive in these environments, uh, some sort of uh, you know bicameral warrior, a New Age Myrmidon to uh, assail the walls of Troy. Uh, but, but if human consciousness has evolved or if it is still evolving – uh, then isn't it b- backwards to attempt to, to to create such a being, to kind of create a more primitive mode of consciousness, to thrive in this more primitive human endeavor? Yeah, it might sound kind of trite to say, but I guess I have to say it. I mean, it feels like this irony or this tension highlights the underlying inhumanity of our projects of war. Yeah. Now, of course, as we mentioned in the earlier stages of this episode, one individual's pain is not directly comparable to another's. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and and we do not have a lot of direct experience with warfare. Right. We're looking at this from the outside. I mean, mm-hmm. neither of us have ever been in combat. We've never been in the military. Uh, and so we would definitely like to hear from our listeners out there who have been in combat or who have been around combat, who have been in the military. I wonder what your experience of this has been like, If if you've felt this – urge from the from the command structure to try to become this more painless robot or this less human type of creature in order to better achieve your your combat aims and what was that like how did that change how you felt about yourself as a person or maybe i I would be interested to hear if you didn't feel that way if you never felt a pressure of that kind yeah by all means get in touch with us and you can do so via a number of various social media options you can find us on facebook 
Twitter, uh, Instagram, and then also there is the homepage, StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find links out to all those accounts, as well as all of the episodes and various blog posts and what have you. Big shout out, as always, to our excellent producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly via email to let us know your feedback on this episode or any other, or to let us know a topic you might like us to cover in the future, our email address is blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank you.